Well, good morning. Man, it's great to see you guys here online. Uh, You guys haven't wished me congratulations yet. Thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate it. Do you know what you're congratulating me for? My bracket. My NCA March Madness bracket. How many of you guys have, have a bracket? Did a bracket this year? All right. Uh, so how many of you are not wanting to admit it that you did a, a bracket? I want you guys to know that as of right now, I'm ahead of 6.6 million people. <laughs> the, the problem is I'm behind another 10.6 million people. I'm not even halfway there, and this is just the ESPN bracket. There are a tons more, but I'm taking comfort in the fact that it's pretty difficult to come up with a perfect bracket. In fact, some mathematicians have gotten a hold of this, and they've evaluated, all right, if every one of these 63 games, you got 64 teams in the tournament, by the way, some of you are not aware, NCAA is the College Athletic Association, and they play basketball. It's a sport that Naismith started years ago, and we have a tournament every March, April. That's what this is all about, okay? Um, so if every one of these games is a 50-50 likelihood, it can go either way, the odds of completing a bracket and not missing anything, in other words, getting a, a, a perfect bracket, is over 9.2 quintillion. One in 9.2 quintillion are your chances of getting a perfect bracket. Here's the number. So nine quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, 36 billion, 854 million, 775,808 to one is the chance I've got to get a perfect bracket. So you know what? I'm all right. I'm I'm not going to really get there. I understand that. Um, But you want to know how, how big 9.2 quintillion is? They estimate there are probably 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on this planet. All right, so it's less than that. So if I were to reach down and grab one grain of sand from somewhere in the world and ask you to guess which grain of sand I'm holding, your chances of guessing which grain of sand I'm holding correctly are 23% better than getting a perfect bracket. (laughs) So where'd all this bracket stuff start? Back in 1977, there was a guy named uh, Jody Haggerty, big, loud, boisterous uh, leader. He had a bar called uh, Jody's Club Forest up in, in Staten Island, New York. And he came up with the ideas for computers and all of that of, of uh, writing out a bracket and having people guess. So he recruited people and one by one. They ended up that year having 88 people complete the bracket trying to guess who's going to win the NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, 30 years later, in 2006, at that same bar, instead of 88 people, it was 150,000 people entered the bracket. Actually, the New York State Gaming Commission, I think, stepped in at that moment and said, this is a little much. And it's continued to expand. This year, they estimate it's going to be over 70 million people will complete a bracket in one of the forms. It's incredible. Isn't that amazing? So, 
That's the thought for today. Let's close in prayer. And <laughs> I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Excitement over a bracket. People, I mean, I had a convenience store clerk. I didn't have anything in my hand. I'm just, I'm just paying the gas because you know, the receipt didn't come through at the pump. He just said, how's your bracket? 88 people, over 70 million. One person to 88 to 70 million. Hmm. A couple of thousand years ago, a guy named John, he's a teenager. He's a fisherman, he and his brother James. They were called by Jesus. He lived with him. Listened to him teach, watched him do miracles, listened to him laugh. Show compassion. Think. What he and his brother and these other disciples started learning is this is what fully alive looks like. We're calling this series Awaken because what John was saying is what happened to my buddies and me is we awakened. Our hearts were beating and our lungs were breathing, but we weren't alive. As somebody told me out in the foyer, as the gospel has gripped them, they've moved from surviving to thriving. And they are so excited about what God's doing. That's why we're calling this Awaken. And the reason that we're in this series is because of a vision we believe that God has entrusted to us as a people to walk alongside many other gathering gatherings and bodies of believers, but this group called Northland, we believe God's calling us during this next season, building on a rich legacy of 40 years, this season being one of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's what the disciples were doing. That's what John was up to. And so John was so excited about Jesus, they were devastated when the crucifixion happened. Because their dreams were shattered. Then three days later, he rose again from the dead. Validating that he was who he claimed. He was who they thought he was. Then for 40 days, he gave them final marching orders. And then he he ascended to the Father, sent his spirit. These guys spread out and started telling the story. Many years ago, uh, I was in Colorado in the summer of 2002, and one, ironically, National Parks staff person lit a match. And it started a forest fire, got out of hand, 138,000 acres burned, astounding. What can happen with just one match? Well, what John, did. He told the story about matches being lit. He told the story about how the fire spread throughout Asia Minor and the world. One person, one match at a time. And it wasn't over something like a bracket. It was over something far more significant. And you and I are part of that bonfire that's now happening as a result 
of one person at a time doing something. It's a word that we talked about last week. The words testify. So at the end of his gospel, John said, this is why I've written my gospel. He was an old man by this time. Many of his friends had lost their lives, been martyred for their faith. He was persecuted, but at the end of his life, he wrote Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John. And we're going through this Gospel of John because of this vision God's entrusted to us. And he said, and if you've been here, you hear, you've heard this over and over, I'll keep saying it. But the reason I do is we're having more and more people say, hey, what is this? And wanting to come. So we want you to catch it. He says, I've written my Gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, he is who he claimed to be. But also I've written that you by believing, may have life in His name, may have vibrancy, uh, not just orthodoxy, may, have, may, you, you may, may, may you thrive, may you be restored in the original purpose you're made for. So that's how He ended His gospel. This is how He began it. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. This is, this is an old man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and putting quill to parchment, writing with a gleam in his eye and a fire in his heart, and he had seen decades of this fire spread. And he's testifying to it. He said, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that's his opening statement. Whoa, we talked about it a few weeks ago. And then he says this. So he is going back to the very first. He says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Now, this is not John uh, the Apostle. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to do what? Huh? To testify. He came as a witness. The Greek word is martyrios, where we get martyr from. What you see in that one verse is the first match that didn't lead to 70 million people filling out a bracket. We're talking about something far more cosmic. One person at a time saying, I'm going to testify. And somebody else saying, I'm going to testify. And somebody else saying, I'm going to testify. Go to verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look! the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Some of you haven't heard any of that because you're looking at the uh, fire burning and you're thinking, do they have fire extinguishers nearby? They do. One of the reasons I'm doing this is yes, for a teaching opportunity, but also because I love playing with fire. Uh, my sons have picked up on that. But this started with one match. Oh, look at this. Actually, I won't do that. So what was going on? 
one match to another, to another, to another. And what we're going to do this morning is finish going through chapter 1. We finish the introduction that John gives to the gospel. And then he starts talking about this John the Baptist guy. And John the Baptist is actually one that started the fire with John and his buddies. People have asked me maybe every week, hey, so excited about the, you know, this uh, new day at Northland and this move into this next chapter. And people say, hey, how's it going to happen? Tell me what's going to go. You know, what are you going to do to get this thing fully, fully relaunched? What am I going to do? I'm one match, but you're a match. So are you, and so are you. And it's us doing what the early church has done. It's not about just one match going out there. It's about match, 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 match. So here's a question. When's the last time you invited someone to Northland? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It's not, it's not a guilt trip. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's for you and me to honestly evaluate Are we testifying? And that's about the easiest testify you can do, is just invite somebody. Or maybe it's having a conversation. Maybe it's moving into more than just, maybe it's planting a phrase at the right moment and uh, doing an act of kindness for someone and tell them the reason I do this is because what Jesus has been up to in my life. But this thing will not happen. The gospel did not spread with just one person yelling. It's person after person after person, not yelling, but being passionate about what Jesus was up to in their lives. So here's the deal. It's not a matter of saying, hey, go testify. Testifying is a symptom of something deeper. And that something deeper is following Jesus and just relating with Him and engaging with the life of the gospel and that awe and brokenness and creativity we talked about and the depth and the engagement and the fellowship and the generosity and the heart and the intimacy with God and the journey. It's all of that that's going on. It's following Him and teaming up and following with others and then testify. So, if inviting somebody to an Easter service, for example, is here, that's not where it starts. It starts with me saying, you know what, I need to testify, but that doesn't start there. That backs up to from testifying. It's because I'm following Jesus and I'm I'm experiencing something that I would not be experiencing otherwise. And part of the reason that there's so many church people that are not involved over here is because there's no vibrancy here. Tracking? Yes or no? And the power of the gospel is rooted in you and me grasping the beauty of following Jesus for ourselves, not just individually, but in the context of community. So in the rest of this passage, we'll finish chapter one this morning. We're gonna look at these disciples, one after another, after another, after another, spreading the word. And the reason they were is because they were following Jesus and saying, I'm following Jesus and here's what's happening. Now, there are tons of things that go on when I learn to follow Jesus, but I'm going to give you four as we go through this kind of verse by verse, this passage. Number one, result of following Jesus that these guys started to grasp. And that probably is one of the biggies for me in my journey. The reason I'm standing up here 
It's not because it's a job. I stand up here because of the gospel and what the gospel has done in my life. And here's one result of following Jesus that I've discovered deeply. And I, it's increasing over the years. And it's this, the more I follow Jesus, the more I experience a clarification of my longings. Why follow Jesus? Some of you are not yet followers of Christ, so here you go. Why follow Jesus? I'll tell you. Why don't you get your longings clarified? You guys ever seen a dog chase a car? You ever seen one catch a car? It's the funniest thing. They don't know what to do. The car stops because of a stoplight or whatever. I saw this just a couple of weeks ago. This dog is just barking and foaming in the mountain, chasing this car, and the car stopped at a light. The dog caught up to it, and then he thought, well, all right, and then turned around and walked away. <laughs> he caught it, didn't know what to do with it. All of us, every one of us has a to-do list, things that we think we want, things that we think that we, are, we, we, we need, things that we think will complete us. You've got a list. Some people know what your list is. Maybe somebody doesn't. But we all have those things that we think will fulfill us things that we think we want. And when I began following Jesus, he comes in and takes leadership of clarifying what my real longings are. And I want you to go back to the text and read this first introduction in John chapter 1, verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. So John's just said, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And they followed him. Now, they followed him. That's, that's a, a surface comment at that point. But over the course of the next three years, they followed him. And in the rest of their lives, they followed him. It wasn't just being on the same path he was on, but it was learning, being, embracing, submitting, engaging with him. But Jesus turned around, saw them following, and asked, and I want everybody to read this question out loud. Here we go. He asked what? What do you want? Now, you can fly past that question, but I want you to remember, this is the Lamb of God. We talked about Him last week. This is the the Alpha and the Omega. He's the creator of all. Jesus doesn't ask questions for information. When He asks a question, it's for your benefit, not His. They, were, they blew the opportunity. Down the line, they didn't blow them. But this one, they come, uh, uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? You know, okay. You know, it was kind of like the, the, the dog who caught the car and didn't know what to say. And he says, okay, come and you'll see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had, what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, I've found the Messiah. The fire is starting. Now I want you to go back to that first question. It's a question that you think It's just a throwaway. It's not at all a throwaway. What do you want? As I've journeyed through my life, there are times that I think I know what I want. But the more that I follow Jesus, 
the more those longings are actually clarified. In fact, we went through the Gospels and just started looking that up. It was a question he asked a lot. Matthew 20, verse 31, 32, there were a couple of blind men in the crowd, and the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder to Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, and he called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And you think, now, isn't that an obvious question? They're blind. Jesus doesn't ask obvious throwaway questions. Mark chapter 10, verse 36. James and John, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Luke chapter 18, verse 40 and 41, another, another blind man. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, I, I want to see. In John chapter 5, we'll get to this in, in, in a few weeks, months, years, I'm not sure, but uh, here a great number of disabled, there was this pool of Bethesda, that's where Bethesda Medical uh, Hospital is named after, it was a healing pool outside the gates of Jerusalem, and here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him a question. Do you want to get well? Jesus is not looking for information. He asks you and me questions for, to help us clarify what is it we're after. You want a job? That's what you said you want? Is that really what you want? Or are you wanting significance? You want more money in the bank account? Is that really what you want? Or do you want security? You want another friend? Do you want that girlfriend to return? Is that really what you want? Or, or is it that you want intimacy? Do you guys remember when we started unpacking this vision, we started talking about longings. And I, I said this, I said, a superficial engagement with our longings leads to a superficial engagement with the gospel. Do you guys remember that? Just say yes. I'll be depressed otherwise. All right, thank you. Remember, we looked at a list of longings. These are not a complete list, but let's take a look at that list. Every human being, not every church person, every human being has a yearning for significance and intimacy and security and love and impact and meaning and wholeness and purpose and acceptance and truth and shalom and our goodness, truth, beauty, joy, triumph, belonging, resolution, freedom, destiny, a sense of story. The list goes on and on. Jesus is not interested in you and me becoming little religious automatons that change our schedule on a Sunday morning when nothing else is going on and the tip-off of the tournament doesn't start for another hour hour and a half. He says, I, I want you to pay attention to your longings because embedded in your heart is, is the eternity that I crafted you for. And what you're ultimately thirsty for, Matt, is me. Psalm 63 verse 1, he says, oh my God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Not religiously, earnestly. Why? Why does he seek him earnestly? He says, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. His, his intensity, his earnestness was directly related to his conviction that he lived in a, in a world where there was no other water on the desert floor of his life for his soul. His thirst ultimately could be quenched by no other thing. But Jesus... So in John, in John 20, 31, that verse we looked at a minute ago, says, I want you to know, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He's not talking about lighting a fire 
just of saying, hey, testifying about what do you believe? Would you believe the same as me? No, it's people that are getting together and they've started to realize life in His name comes from Him tapping the deepest thirst of my soul. And over the course of my journey, I'm learning more and more what I really am longing for. So that's the first result of following Jesus that these disciples were just gripped by. And over the course of their life, that's, it's why John was writing his gospel. That life in His name, he said, that's what I've been thirsty for my whole life. And I never knew it until I met Jesus that what I really was thirsty for was His life in His name. Here's the second result of following Jesus. If I'm going to testify, I've got to be following Him to a degree that there's a vibrancy, not just an orthodoxy, but a vibrancy about my journey. And that will involve me receiving from Him as I'm relating with Him and following Him and getting the word clarification of my longings, but it will also involve following Him results in the transformation of of my character. Every person here wants to change. Might be a little, might be a lot. We all have a a compass deep within us about what we're yearning for and who we want to be. And we think it's self-improvement. No, 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 it's Jesus' improvement we're looking for. And what He's in the business of is not improving our religiosity, but enhancing and restoring our humanity to the glory of God. This comes out in the next verse. In verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew, remember, brought his brother Simon, said, I've met the Messiah. Is Simon going to tell anybody? Absolutely, because of here, what just, what, what happens. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John, but not for long. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. You say, well, that's an odd thing to say. What's the big deal there? Biblically speaking, a person's name was not just what was on their name tag. It was who they were. Names were given as prophecies, as predictions, but they were also given, names were changed to validate someone's character, change in character for the better, for the worse. And you see it happen over and over. There's Abram's, his name was changed to Abraham. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, Genesis 32, verse 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God, with men, and you've overcome. Jacob means swindler. His name was changed to Israel. Saul, his name was changed to Paul. Jesus looks at Peter, and what he said goes way deeper than you and I in the 21st century would grasp. He said, your name is Simon, but it's going to be Cephas. And some of you know from the other Gospels or your study Greek, Cephas means rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, rock. But somebody who's solid. Jesus says, I know who you are, Simon, but let me tell you who you're going to become as you follow me. I'm giving you a new name, Revelation chapter 2. It's not just Peter, it's all of us. Revelation 2.17, whoever has ears to hear. This is John's final revelation. 
Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is Jesus speaking in the, at the last day. He's given John a vision of this, and he says, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus comes to us, and he says, I've got a new name for you. And it goes deeper than just, you know, the, the superficial. I mean, we do our naming. I mean, we name our kids often way too superficially. You, know, you, you just don't want their initials to spell something stupid. Uh, with my boys, we had three boys, and for, we had several criteria, but one of them had to fit in the sentence that whatever name we were considering, it had to fit in the sentence, is on my team. In other words, I was just imagining in school, I want Joel on my team. Okay, that sounds good. I want Stephen on my team. Yep, we want Andrew on our team. Yep, all right, that passed. Another one was throw me the ball, Stephen. You say, that's all you did? I'm not even going to look over at my wife right now. She's, uh, (laughs) this is bringing back bad memories for her. But we also, it wasn't just superficial. It was family names. It was the biblical meaning. But what Revelation 2 and this statement in, in, in John 1 is going way deeper. You have been given a name in this culture. And sometimes it's from persons of influence that have suffocated you. Jesus comes along and says, your name will no longer be that. Let me tell you who you are. You're my son. You're my daughter. Thursday night, Darlene and I had dinner with a couple dear friends. We've known them for years. They were in a small group many years ago. And uh, about 15 minutes into the conversation, Carrie, my friend, he got a phone call sitting right next to a text. He looks at it, and it was his mother and his, his stepmother, stepmother of like 25, 30 years. His father was in the hospital. And it was a text. She was telling him, uh, your dad just went home to be with Jesus. Right there at dinner. It was a holy moment. And we started processing. And then he revealed something. He would have told us anyway, but he said, the significance of this morning was a game changer for me even now with this news. His dad had been declining in health for a while, but that morning he had a phone call with his dad, and his dad said, things aren't looking good. And Carrie said, Dad, I'll fly back this morning uh, from there down here in Orlando for vacation. They were. And his dad said, no need. I'm going to be gone by the afternoon. He said, Dad? But his father was lucid and talking, and in that conversation, Carrie's father called him son for the first time in his life. He called him sir. It was respect. It wasn't a lack of love. His father was just a very formal person. And, and Carrie came to Christ as an adult, and he's, he's, he's been grappling w- w- with that. And something unleashed in him that morning that was beautiful. And now it was accentuated with the passing of his dad. And the last conversation he had with his dad, his dad changed his name and said, you're, you're no longer sir, but your son. Jesus is not after making you religious. He's after loving you and changing your character, not keeping more rules, but following Him more powerfully and authentically. And so, Simon, we got John the Baptist, Andrew. Andrew then tells Peter, 
Peter gets his name changed, and now Peter is about to spread the word. When we follow Jesus, we start following because of clarification of our longings, but also a transformation of our character. There's a third result of following him, and it's illumination for our journey. He says, let me speak into who you are, and let me tell you what is about to come. Let me talk to you about what you're struggling with, what you're grappling with. Verse 43, let's keep going through the text. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So Philip, like Andrew and Peter, here we go. From the town of Bethsaida, uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, you come and see, said Philip. So when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a powerful statement from the all-knowing king of all creation. He says, he does, he's not saying he's, he's perfect. He's just saying there's no deceit in him. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you when you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. A fig tree was significant to Israel. And a young a Jewish young man would be doing his prayers. And if he was under the fig tree, uh, very probably he was praying about the Messiah to come. And so later that day, he meets this guy. And this guy, and he thought he was all alone. And this guy says, I saw you. I see in you. I see you. First Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That word overseer is translated overseer. The Greek word is episkopos. Episkopos. Epi in, within, skopos, we get an English word from it. What is it? Scope. Telescope, microscope. He's the scope of your soul, of yours. Peter says, he's the the one who sees us. He's the the skopos of our souls. He can articulate for you better than you can what you're struggling with, what you're grappling with, what you're fearing, what you're excited about. And these disciples said, gosh, follow Jesus. Come on. Why? Well, you get a clarification. You receive clarification for your longings. And and your character starts getting transformed. You start seeing your your journey illuminated. He, He starts knowing us. I've never been known like this. And then there's a fourth as we complete the chapter and complete these disciples telling one another, one after the other. You receive an anticipation for your destiny. When you start following Jesus, it's not just clarification and transformation and illumination. You start becoming an optimist, significant substantively, not pretend. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower said, there's no pessimistic general has ever won a battle. Optimism, it's not blind optimism, but it's realism because Jesus says, hey, I've got this thing figured out. I've, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Go back to the text. 
Then Nathanael declared, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In that one statement, what Jesus says at the very end of that, there are two phrases I want you to see, the ascending and descending. It's a, that's a direct connection to what people refer to as Jacob's ladder, a vision that Jacob had about a ladder between here and heaven, between him and God. And Jesus is saying, he's bringing that up and he knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus was saying, I am Jacob's ladder. That is what that lad, that's what that dream was about. It was about me. Then the second phrase there on the Son of Man, that's a phrase from Daniel. It's a phrase from Ezekiel. It's a phrase about the return of Messiah, second coming, and saying the Son of Man is coming on clouds to bring to fruition the birth of the new heaven and the new earth and establish it forever. And you see that coming out in Revelation. And these guys are hearing that, and so all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, I know the outcome. I know the end. Follow me. Oh, you, you, you'll still have difficulties. You'll still have troubles. But let me tell you this. I will overcome. And you can take heart. Even though in this world you will have trouble, John 16, take heart because I have overcome the world. And you can approach each day, not with blind optimism, but deep, authentic anticipation. My son Joel was with me back um, in 2000, 2001. I would uh, preach here fairly regularly. Some of you were here then. And he was about four or five at the time. That's back when Northland had about 15, 16 services a weekend over in the rink. And, um, but I told him, it was just him and me for her dad's son thing. I said, buddy, uh, we're going to Disney World. And he could, I mean, he was so excited. And so Tuesday, after all the services, had to recover that day. And then that Tuesday night, we talked about the next day, Wednesday, being at Disney World. And we were staying in an embassy suites type thing. He was in the outside bedroom, and I turned out the light, went in, and he said, Dad, Daddy? I came back in and said, yeah, bud, what do you want? I can still see his face, a little chin right above the covers. Big smile, almost tearing up. He said, thank you for tomorrow. I said, what? He said, thank you for tomorrow. It's going to be awesome. Ruben always says, uh, hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is dancing to the tune. And what the gospel enables you and me is to dance to the melody of the hope of the gospel and to say, let me tell you, yeah, I'm testifying right now, but the reason is I'm following Jesus. And because I'm following Jesus, I'm following because He clarifies my longings. And as He's clarifying my longings, I start understanding something. He transforms my character. He illuminates our journey, and He gives us an anticipation of our destiny. That's far more than inviting somebody to church. That's inviting somebody back into the original trajectory that they were created for. And that's the beauty of following Jesus for life. Let's pray together.
Amen. Jesus, thank you that the gospel is good news. Thank you for the invite that you place on us to be your people. Thank you for the summons that you give us to be a community called Northland. Thank you for what you're breathing into us. And I pray that you would give each of us the grace, the hope, the courage to follow you, to follow you authentically, and not putting all our stuff aside, but bringing it before you and receiving clarification for our longings and starting to be transformed in our character and see our journey illuminated in ways it could not be illuminated just naturally, seeing a supernatural insight that you give us through your word and through our brothers and sisters in Christ and us together participating in authenticity in a fallen world, but having an anticipation for our destiny, thanking you for tomorrow, dancing to the melody and the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the privilege you've given us to to follow you. May that be contagious, and I ask it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen and amen.